0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am overjoyed today to welcome Professor Hilde Jorenz to the show. Professor Jorenz is Associate Professor of Anthropology and Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island and the author of Imaging the Great Puerto Rican Family, Framing Nation, Race and Gender During the American Century. Today, we are discussing her new book called Making Livable Worlds, Afro-Puerto Rican Women Building Environmental Justice, which was published in 2021 by the University of Washington Press. Professor Jorenz, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Could you talk about what inspired this book?
1: So this book is um, inspired, I think, in several ways, right? There isn't, for me, there isn't one way, one one source of inspiration, but it comes from multiple places. And I think um, one source of inspiration was, you know, my, my mother's family, the, you know, the matriarchs of my family, my mother, my aunt, and, uh, several of my cousins, um, so I kind of wanted to, to in some way, to honor their life experience. You know, my great, uh, my grandmother, my great grandmother. Uh, these are Afro Puerto Rican women who, as I talk about in the book, were, you know, completely invisible to, I think, to the state and also, of course, to history. Um, and I, I, you know, I think this book has always been with me in some way, right? This kind of concern. Uh, about their lives and historicizing them and making sure um that they and people like them you know are also uh seen, that their lives are are seen as worthy as um you know important lives that contribute to the building of you know of society you know in puerto rico but of course people like them contribute to the building of societies you know all over the, the world right um and so I was always concerned about uh, women who are left out of history um, and who are invisible to history. And, and so that that's one source of, of inspiration, you know, visibilizing uh, women's lives, uh, particularly women who are you just not seen, you know, by uh, academics and the state and policymakers and, and so on and so forth. Um and then uh, on the other hand, or, or in tangent, you know, in relation to this source of inspiration, I was also inspired by the, act, the, the women activists that I met uh, when I started the fieldwork for uh, this, this project on environmental justice, right? And, um, you know, I met a woman who were a lot like, you know, the women in my family, right? Who were matriarchs, who were supporting families, who were raising children, but who were also supporting communities and building uh, life ways for their communities. Um, And so when I met those women, I really, really wanted to also visibilize them. And I I, uh, saw... You know, this is a, an anecdote. I, I always tell anecdotes. I think sometimes they're, um, you know, more telling <laughs> than academic explanations, right? And as an anthropologist, of course, anecdotes I think are part of my just uh, my fieldwork, <laughs> you know, the way I, I hear the world and the way I retell the world. Um, and so, you know, I would go to like uh, community meetings where, um, people are meeting around, you know, an issue, right, like an initiative, or, you know, they're planning a uh, a protest, right, or they're planning to, you know, submit paperwork uh, to litigate against, you know, a polluting company, let's say, right. So I go to one of these meetings, and often I would see and hear the woman, right, doing, you know, a lot of the work to make things happen. So, you know, taking notes, or you know, uh, making or bringing the food, you know, to to give out at the meeting, or making coffee and passing out the coffee, but taking notes and giving suggestions, right? Um, and you know, taking care of the kids in the background as they milled around, and um, I saw them being so central, not only to the to the, you know, planning right of the meeting, and but also of making it happen. And also of coming up with conceptual ideas and solutions, so they were, you know, involved in all of these uh, aspects of of these, you know, of this community organizing. And yet, whenever uh, the press would come by, or you know, whenever the protests would take place, it would be the guys, the men, who would talk as if they were the only ones at the forefront. Over and over and over. And then the woman would just stand there next to them, you know, quiet as the camera was pointed at these men who were contributors to, to these initiatives, no doubt, but they weren't the protagonists. <laughs> and so, you know, I saw this over and over and over where the men's voice would be documented at the expense of the woman who often had done so much more to actually make you know, these initiatives come to fruition. And so uh, that was really upsetting to me uh, because, of course, that's something that I have lived, I have myself lived uh, in academic spaces too, right? In in lots of spaces where, you know, people will turn to the man next to me before they turn to me, if they turn to me at all. So I was very aware (laughs) of this kind of invisibilization that, uh, women suffer, and particularly women of color, right? And black women. Um, and so I think uh, so. That's another so- source of inspiration where I really, really wanted to uh, put the woman front and center as protagonists of, you know, the the environmental justice movement and and their and the initiatives, right? Of of these movements. So a lot of the thing that makes it a lot of the 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 um, the initiatives that make it into the news, right into the kind of mainstream or you know into the media bubble, are things that are planned by women <laughs> in their communities. So they're you know uh, with very little resources as well, right? Except their voice, you know, and, and their community behind them. So I really wanted to to put them front and center. And then uh, lastly, I wanted to to mention. Um, that I was also really inspired by uh, an essay um, that uh, Arundhati Roy, you know, this wonderful uh, Indian writer, um, she penned this essay. Well, it was, I don't know when she penned it, but it was published in 1999, right? And I really loved it. And I was like, you know, that is kind of a a North (laughs) for me as, because as I was thinking about this book, as this book was kind of in the back of my mind, you know, this essay came back to me again and again and again as a source of inspiration. And it's uh, it's called The Greater Common Good. And it's on page 87 of, of my book. And I'll just read a small piece. But she said, we have to support our small heroes. And in parentheses, she says, of these, we have many, many. Who knows? Perhaps that's what the twenty first century has in store for us- the dismantling of the big, big dams, big ideologies, big contradictions, big countries, big wars, big heroes, big mistakes. Perhaps it will be the century of the small. <laughs> and so for me, that was just a call of action. <laughs> you know and And I said, you know, this book that's circling in my mind, you know, about putting women, invisible women, quote unquote, front and center, is actually the path forward in this new century. That's it. You no know more of this uh, letting history and letting these big ideologies and these big men <laughs> uh, stand In our light, (laughs) so this is this is uh, the kind of confluence of of, um, inspirations that uh, allowed me to to write this book.
0: And what audience did you have in mind for this book?
1: So, for the audience, I mean, it's a short book, right? So, I was hoping that it would be taught um, to students, you know, um, and I think it can be taught uh, as as early as high school really right so you know along the lines of um i don't know howard Zinn's book the people's history of the united states right um you know or zora neale hurston's right um my, their eyes were watching god um these books get taught in like in junior year of high school so it could it could uh, be taught as early as high school but uh certainly in college you know, and, and beyond. And anybody, I think the audience is anybody who's interested, right, in, in kind of uh, understanding, you know, or in kind of being, anyone who's interested in, in being a part of the writing, writing, correcting of history, I think might want to pick up this, this book, right? It's, it's uh, also, you know, Caribbean studies, Puerto Rican studies, Black studies. Uh, feminism and ecofeminism. So, anyone with those kinds of interests, I think, would be uh, should be able to to read this book and get gain something out of it. And of course, anthropology it offers a critique of of our discipline as well.
0: And you draw from very different sources and utilize a whole bunch of different methodologies. Could you maybe introduce a couple of these for listeners?
1: Yeah, so in terms of methodology, I think um, I often discuss methodology methodology with uh, one of my colleagues and, and close collaborators. Um, and I should mention, I'll mention some names, some people that I work with, but uh, Dr. Carlos Garcia Quijano, who I'll mention again, we've worked, you know, very closely together for many years, and I'll talk about him uh perhaps a little later, but, but in terms of methodology, he's a method, uh, an anthropological methodologist. And we often talk about how methodology responds to your question, right? So what the question do you, you are asking or the kinds of, right? The, the kinds of ways in which uh, the kinds of data or information, right? I also have a critique of this idea of data, but the kinds of, of knowledge or information that you're seeking, you know, has there are different kinds of methods for different kinds of information i guess in a in a plainer way right so methods is a tool right for discovery in some way right it's a tool for excavation um and if you have the right kinds of methods right you you can produce the right for you for your question you can produce the right kind of knowledge right as a result of using these methods. Um, And so in terms of methodology, right? I was using uh, decolonizing ethnography, uh, autobiographical example or autoethnography. And of course I use, you know, historical data or historical information, memory or memoir. um, And, and silence <laughs> right i mean i don't know if that counts as a method but certainly i was also um letting silence be right and letting that which is not known unknown so so in so for this kind of project and and also it's a narrative you know i was all also thinking about it in terms of i well okay so i should confess that i am a writer <laughs> and i i i call myself an anthropological writer um you know and, and so i'm often thinking about narrating um in my subconscious as i'm doing my work my my fieldwork um i'm i'm often thinking about narrating that which i am excavating um and so narrative always plays a a part somewhere in my brain as i do this kind of uh, ethnographic work. Um, And this book also, you know, I talk about narrative reparation. So to repair that kind of gap or hole uh, in the narrative of women's lives, right, is to also offer this kind of book that uses all these kinds of methodologies uh, to produce or to, to unveil, I guess, a certain kind of knowledge, right, rather than to produce, to unveil it, to bring it forth. Um, and these, these different, uh, ethnographic methods or these different methodologies, um, are each responding to something in my question, right? And my question is, you know, my question or one of them was, you know, where is, where are women's lives in this social and environmental justice arena right in puerto rico right that's one of my questions um and so i had to use different kinds of methodologies to answer that or to to think through that or to unveil through that so with the colonizing ethnography you know it's a, a, a increasingly um, important i think suite of methods in anthropology and in the social sciences um and you know, it does this thing in which uh, it is at once, right? The ethnography, right? As descriptive, it's it's applied, right? So there's this descriptive applied component, but it also allows for the ethnography, the stories, right? The lives and knowledge of people who are marginalized to to be theorized And, and actually for them to theorize their own lives too, right? So it has this activist component you know, the colonized ethnography has an activist component uh, as well. At, for me, it also grounds, the, you know, for me, the colonizing ethnography also grounds um, knowledge in in, you know, the land, you know, in the ecosystem, in the ecosphere, in the knowledge of indigenous people who bobo you know who circling around in the atmosphere in the case of puerto rico specific, specifically um it's, it's atmospheric because right indigenous people are no longer uh there in the in the land because they were um within the f- first 50 years of spanish settlement in puerto rico indigenous people uh are said to have quote unquote disappeared right so and what we don't talk about is the genocide and ethnocide of, of the Taino people, right? Um, and so I really, for me, the colonized ethnography was also about really grappling with those people who were there uh, when the Spanish settlers arrived and who were there to some degree when my ancestors you know, were brought against their will from Africa. Um, and so kind of really grappling with these kinds of layers that are still, you know, uh, inscribed in the ecosystem and, you know, in the land itself, in the language, <laughs> in the food that we eat, you know. So I, I really wanted to grapple with those things. Um, and so the colonized ethnography was, you know, the useful method, at least for me, and also to face you know, it, it was also a way to come face to face in the mirror with myself <laughs> uh, and kind of, so it's, it turns out that for me, the colonized ethnography also has this kind of, uh, like truth telling or honesty, <laughs> you know, this kind of way in which I can't hide behind, uh, behind theory and methods and, you know, all of, you know, I I, I couldn't hide, uh you know, myself here from, from, from this narrative. I couldn't fade away. You know, I was also there, right? And I was also there constructing a kind of narrative, <laughs> right? And so, and, you know, the autobiographical example, which is also some people refer to it as um, auto theory and autoethnography. And I found that uh, I have found that useful um, in my entire body of, uh, acad- of academic writing. Um, in fact, my very first publication, when I finished my dissertation, and my dissertation was autoethnographic, and then my very first publication was an autoethnographic article. Um, and I found that, because my family and you know my my life history has represented uh a, you know a, a slice of Puerto Rican history um I find it useful right to to begin with what I know right with, with this kind of family history and also to try to understand what I don't know <laughs> you know it's also placing it within a more global context right and uh feeling less alone, right? Um, We weren't the only family, right? Who was, you know, whose ancestors were abducted, brought from Africa, made to toil in the plantations, who were then, you know, left to fend for themselves when the institution of slavery uh, (laughs) uh, was abolished, but not, you know, which is fine, right? Uh, It should have been, it shouldn't have been even an institution. Uh, But what happens is, you know, people fend for themselves in a really savagely capitalist and racist system. And so the options for a family like mine are very limited, you know? Um, And so understanding also that this was a broader uh, experience has also been really freeing and liberating. Um, and, And so placing myself again in this family history at the center um, of 20th century uh, history uh, in Puerto Rico has been really important. Uh, and a way to relate with my uh, with the people with whom I, I worked uh, because it turns out I worked in the region where my family's from. And so, right? So it's kind of also understanding. So what happened to other families? How did they <laughs> deal with it? And how did they then deal with the, You know the uh, environmental degradation that they were then facing. uh, After many of us exited, or you know, uh, as I say in the book many times, were ejected to the diaspora. So a bunch, you know, so many of us, thousands of us, left to the U.S. diaspora, right, to U.S. cities, in particularly at that time in New England, in uh, places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Chicago. Um, but what happened to those people who stayed, how did they then confront, you know, the kind of, um, uh, savagery, I would, I would say again, of, of this racial capitalism that continues to develop there even, right. Or, or actually, I don't know, maybe more rapidly because uh, so many people have left, had left, Right. Um, so it became, you know, in some sense, and increasingly, I think, especially after the the hurricane, it became understood as this depopulated region, right? And so the methods I was using was kind of answering these different queries about place, about people, about history, about ethnography, right? So a lot of themes um, that I think uh, needed to be visualized in relation to the lives of women who are absent from history and ethnography.
0: And you develop this concept of matriarchal dispossession. So what is matriarchal dispossession and what role does it play in Puerto Rico?
1: Yeah, so I um, talk about matriarchal dispossession and I was thinking about it in relation to um, the history, as I said, of the woman, the matriarchal, you know, um, woman, the leaders, I would say, in some ways, in my in my own family, right? There are these matriarchs who were very uh, strong. Uh, my mother, uh, for one, and then my aunt and and uh, my cousins—they're all matri- matriarchs in their family, in their family, in their pa- fa- familial units. But also, um, they they all all act as matriarchs in within the, the family structure. My family I mean it's, this isn't just about my family it's actually something that I saw again in the communities in the Hobos Bay where I was doing this environmental justice research. I saw very similar structures of you know uh, the eldest as the you know the, the main matriarch with the woman in middle age right beginning to take leadership roles um to actually make things happen so the elder as matriarch would become a kind of um uh advisor right that who people would consult as needed in relation to big life questions right and then the middle age uh matriarchs that those people who were then coming into you know middle age uh would be the the people conceptualizing initiatives and doing and carrying things out, right? Because they were at that stage of life in which they could really be physical as well as, as, um, as well as mentally able to, to, to conceptualize like big things, big initiatives, big ideas. Um, and then the younger people serving as, uh, helpers, right. But in, in serving as helpers, you're learning (laughs) how to conduct yourself, right? And you're learning about what is what you can ask, or you know, what you can ask, or what you can do, and what you uh cannot do yet, <laughs> right? Um, so it's kind of one one of my um nieces actually uh said something which I thought was interesting. Uh she said, you know, uh our families are very hierarchical. <laughs> and like there is a way you know there's a hierarchy which i i thought it was like a really good insight there's a hierarchy and a way of doing things in relation to the matriarch right but but that isn't a negative thing that's also right respect for your elders right which is actually a, a quite a, a an important uh, tradition uh, uh, in the southeast where where i'm from which is, of course, quite, you know, a region that is um, majority Afro-descendant. So there isn't, this isn't something that was created, you know, hierarchy within the capitalist system. This is something that was passed down, you know, through intergenerational practice, right, in a region that is uh, mostly Black and Afro-descendant and Indigenous too, right? So there's this respect and this... uh, honoring of your elders, which is embedded in in the way in which people practice their everyday lives, right? Which includes, of course, hierarchy, but not in that kind of rigid, you know, capitalistic way, right? Where there's a chain of command. That's not it. It's a hierarchy that respects and honors the knowledge, particularly, and experiences of your elders, right? And this is, you know, for women, this is a place in which they, uh, they get to to share knowledge, right? After, you know, and, and, and right, for some women, uh, this is, you know, as they age, they finally, you know, get <laughs> respect, not only from their families, but from society, right? Uh, so that's, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um, so matriarchal dispossession, which is what you <laughs> asked about originally, is this way in which, uh impoverished impoverished single women uh, are often blamed for their condition, right? And in the book, I talk about um, a quintessential, for, at least for me, example of matriarchal dispossession was the backlash of the documentary after Maria, right? And I talk about it in their book, and it's a documentary that uh, played on Netflix, I believe. And this documentary... Um, really uh, gathers, you know, produce so much ire in certain segments of the Puerto Rican society. And of course, I've seen that ire all my life because I grew up in an Afro-descendant, impoverished, single-headed household. (laughs) And so I I thought, wow, this is how we were shamed. Like, you know, it's so similar to how there was this uh, feeling of shame about being poor, about you know, being a single-headed household, about being Afro-descendant, and how we, you know, often felt these, you know, glares and people looking down upon us, uh, on us, um, you know, in, in a- among certain segments, right, the middle class, the educated, look down upon uh, impoverished single mothers, and and this is historical, right? Um, this isn't new, this is something that has been uh, percolating in the society, uh, for a very long time. Um, and so, and, and seeing, you know, single, impoverished, particularly Afro-descendant mothers, as problematic, as a social problem, right? And matriarchal dispossession speaks about all of that, right? This kind of blaming the victim mentality that happens. Uh, but what what all of that, you know, the, what all of this judgmental uh, ire <laughs> in the case of after Maria, and in the case of, you know, the greater uh, social whole, what all of this points to is really this ignorance about, you know, systemic gender oppression, right? About systemic uh, um, racism, right? About racialization, about um, racial capitalism, right? Um, So, is What it does, what this kind of ire against, you know, single mothers, single Black mothers or single mothers of color uh, in the context of the continental U.S. and, and probably in other places, what it, what it doesn't understand, excuse me, is that these are mother-making worlds. Right. And this is what I found in in not only the documentary, (laughs) which, by the way, after Maria is a documentary that shows the pigs precisely this: three single mothers, head of household, making a go in the Bronx, in the diaspora after they lost everything in Hurricane Maria. So it is incredible that it would create this ire among viewers in Puerto Rico. And what what made them so upset is that it showed poverty and it showed people struggling uh, in, in a system that excludes them. <laughs> I mean, right? So so matriarchal dispossession really talks about, you know, about all of this historical um, rejection of single-headed households uh, with, of mothers of color and and black mothers particularly. And so what I try to do is kind of show how um, productive, right? And and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that that's the only people who are worth it or worthy, the productive people. But I mean, if you are a a mother, if you're a mother uh, of, you know, if you have children, right, there is no, you know, whether you, you know, it doesn't matter what it is you're doing. You're being productive because you're investing in raising kids. I mean, it might not be the kind of productivity, and in fact, it isn't, right? Child rearing is not the the kind of productivity that is recognized in the patriarchy, patriarchal capitalist system. Homework, right? The work that we do at home is not recognized as valid, as productive, as interesting, as useful. And yet, we're producing people, the humans, who are going to people the society, right? Um, and so I wanted to talk about all of that and and, and kind of show the matri- matriarchal dispossession is this, um, what is it? It's a kind of uh, middle class uh, or you know middle and upper class um, fallacy or mis- Construction or misunderstanding of of how matriarchy works within impoverished communities. It is a source of wealth, right? The matriarch is wealthy, the matriarch is important, right? The matriarch has knowledge, the matriarch shares that knowledge, the matriarch, you know, uh, passes intergenerational uh, knowledge in the community. To to all genders, not only to, it passes specific knowledge to to girls, but it also passes other kinds of knowledge to everyone else (laughs) too, Um, right? So, you know, what is that knowledge, right? Cooking, comportment, behavior, acceptability, responsibility, accountability, right? Creation of, you know, initiatives to better your community, help. Solidarity, care, love—I mean, we can go on and on and on, right? Um, and so, this is what uh, what I wanted to to point out with this term, matriarchal dispossession, which I feel, you know, if, if nothing else, is a really important key takeaway in this in this work.
0: Speaking of uh, making initiatives to help the community. I think now is a wonderful time to introduce listeners to Idebajo.
1: Yeah. So Idebajo it's um Idebajo is the acronym for iniciativa de eco desarrollo de Bahía de Hobos. So what that means is initiative for the eco-development of the Hobos Bay. And Idebajo is a umbrella organization. Um under which there are several other smaller organizations. So idebajo is like the big kind of, if you would say, corp- it's not corporate, but if you would, you know, to liken it to something, it's like this big uh, organization under which many different organizations uh, work, uh, including the one with whom I work, two of who, which I work close, closely, closely with, which is uh, Dialogo Ambiental, Comité Diálogo Ambiental, which is an environmental committee, um, and with another organization, which is a neighborhood group uh, called El Coqui, uh, which is the name of, of a neighborhood in the Hobos Bay. Um, and so they either it has an interesting history because they uh, formally came together as Idebajo in 2010. Okay, So that seems recent if you think of idebajo as the beginning but it isn't the beginning right there have been uh the, the, and in fact the same many of the same in fact okay the founders of idebajo are the same people who have been working in this region against environmental injustice and poverty so i think that's the other connection that i should make clear that this is also, it's not just about environmental and it's in relation to environmental, but it's also about poverty, right? So uh, the, many of the uh, uh, folks who've been working with the Debajo since 2010 were people who have been working um, since really 60s, 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and um, early 2000s under different organizations and different uh, initiatives. Right. And then in 2010, they decided to really, really, you know, uh, bring it together and and be, you know, um, a lot more cohesive and intentional uh, as they went forward. Um, but and some of those folks are, you know, I'll mention a few is, uh, who are really important uh, to IDebajo is Nelson Santos, who's a, a, an incredibly important uh, community organizer and elder uh, in El Coqui, Uh, and in in the Hobos Bay and Ruf Santiago, who is of course, really, really a significant uh, environmental activist and community lawyer. Um, There is another man uh, named uh, Victor Alvarado, uh, who was there, you know, since childhood. (laughs) Some of these people were children actually when they first started. Uh, Really, it's amazing, Victor Alvarado, is and I are, are basically the same age right so uh, and he when when I interviewed him he was telling me how he was you know he started organizing and and, do, and doing activism when he was like 12 you know living in a in a housing project in in the Hobos Bay in Salinas so because they he was already aware that they were confronting Right. And so, and the same thing with Ruth Santiago. She was, she's in her 60s, but she was in high school when she started thinking about this. In, in, before she went to college, before she went to become an environmental lawyer in the, you know, uh, late 70s and 80s, she was already involved in, you know, in in trying to figure out, okay, how can we help our communities rise out of this uh, poverty? And Uh, to to militate against environmental injustice that they were seeing encroaching upon their communities, um, and then another important person uh, is uh, among many many, but is is Figueroa, uh, and um, who is the president of the El Coqui Community Board, um, and another woman is uh, Wanda de Jesus. Uh, um, really important. So th- there's a, a number of people um, who have been. Working with Idebajo, with what is now in Idebajo for you know a very long time uh, under other uh, organizations. Um, but so I touched upon briefly on the history of the Hobos Bay, right? Uh, when I tell you that people have been fighting uh, against uh, the encroaching environmental pollution um, through you know because all these uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals and oil refineries, Uh, and energy um complexes were placed in their communities um and so basically they live in the shadow of all of these companies um and so they saw the you know the harms the the pollution and the contamination really early on um and so they began fighting you know quite early on too Um, but in terms of the hoas bay just briefly um You know this is a a region that was a sugar producing region right and so um this is a a plantation region so this is the modern day the present right of what was a plantation uh in the 17 18 and 19th century and 20th century actually right so this is you know the it's a kind of study if you would in what uh, the scholar uh, Francoise Vergès, who's from Réunion Island, uh, she talks about the racial capitalocene. And I think this region is really a study in the racial capitalocene, right? It's this this region in which, you know, uh, Africans were brought to toil in the plantations and then their descendants, right, did so for, you know, several hundred more years. Uh, And then Uh, Slavery was abolished, but racism was not. So they were left to fend for themselves in an incredibly uh, oppressive and racist system, society, communities. um, You know, they were, you know, an incredibly racist uh, state, local and federal, uh, incredibly racist education system, right? Uh, Incredibly racist labor system, um, and so they were fend to the, left to fend for themselves in their black skins, right? In a world which rejected them and made their lives difficult. So um, what happens in this region is that after the plantations leave, after, and then after the plantations become, you know, for-profit plantations, and then those close, and they lead thousands and thousands of workers without jobs in the sugar industry, so there's no more sugar to cut there's no much no more sugar to process this is you know it was a uh industrial agricultural industrial monoculture it was sugar that was the what moved the wheels here, and sugar left right um and so you know, what happened in, in this region, what happens to those people is that the poverty level, of course, rises uh, as jobs vacate. And then all of these pharmaceuticals and oil refineries and uh, energy producing entities come in, right? But they don't produce jobs for local people, right? And so the the local people... there's a segment of the local people who never depended on those jobs anyway because they were fishing and they were, you know, um, foraging. Uh, This is, you know, also, this is, uh, the Hobos Bay is Puerto Rico's second most significant estuary. Um, So there is, as an ecosystem, it's a very rich ecosystem, right? Uh, There's mangroves, wetlands, and the sea. Um, And so people learn there's a segment of the population that really learned to make a living from harvesting right the mangrove the sea and the wetlands right uh, so those people have had i think a, a much better experience in this system because they've never depended upon the the state or, or capital to provide for their lives right but it was the, the folks who were dependent upon formal employment who had, you know, a much more difficult time surviving uh, in the Hobos Bay, particularly after the sugar industry left. Uh, And then they were faced, of course, with the contamination of their ecosystem, which with the contamination of the ecosystem, everyone, right, is affected. Right, no matter how you make your living, you know, if your soil, water, air, and, you know, land is contaminated, then... Uh, it's, it's This is what uh, Carlos Garcia, Dr. Carlos Garcia, who's a, a, an environmental anthropologist and cultural ecologist, this is what he calls when, when people don't have uh, access to their lands anymore, to their ecosystem, he calls it a catastrophic loss of resilience, right? Because as long as you have a healthy ecosystem, right? You can forage, right? And you can make a living, particularly if that's your skill set. If you're a fisher, if you're a forager, you can surely make a living from harvesting uh, from the ecosystem. So if people lose a healthy ecosystem, then they also experience this catastrophic uh, loss of resilience, which uh, Dr. Garcia Quijano talks about.
0: You mentioned environmental injustice, and in the book, you distinguish between environmentalism and environmental justice. What are the differences between the two?
1: So um, I talk about environmentalism as slightly different from environmental justice activists. And actually to the ideology as well behind uh, each of these. So they're not one and the same. And I think uh, anyone familiar with like uh, John Muir, right? And like the Sierra Club will quickly, and especially now that the Sierra Club is reconfiguring itself to, um, you know, to to be more environmentally justice-minded will know this this kind of distinction, right? But essentially the environmentalism has been this kind of ideology of, you know, reparation of ecosystem, but it doesn't include the people who live in the ecosystem. And oftentimes it blames the people of the ecosystem (laughs) for the destruction of the ecosystem or the over-harvesting of the ecosystem. When in fact, it is often the people who live in an ecosystem who are both its managers and its stewards and, and, and more than both, right? More than that. They're also its protectors. So, So environmentalism tends to make this kind of, you know, tends tends to be interested in like conservation, right? And endemic species and uh, often um, produces or or, or leads with a fortress mentality, right? So they're like, we're going to conserve this piece of land, but nobody can go there. (laughs) Or if, if they go there, right, there's all these, you know, a list of rules you have to follow, like... Make for in Puerto Rico. That's actually a big issue right now. in people, I don't quite think that people realize what's happening uh, in, in this. You know, in terms of of this distinction specifically, they realize what's happening. I just think there is there is an ideology of environmentalism that is being enacted uh, in, at this very moment, and people are not always able. You know, if you don't know, you can't connect the dots immediately but so just quickly as in puerto rico right now there is this issue in which there's coastal gentrification so all of these wealthy uh, many of them you know americans uh euro americans are buying up coastal lands in puerto rico um, and quickly gentrifying which means that they're making it uh exceedingly difficult for people who live there to remain there a and b they have driven up the prices to like these staggering amounts of money, right? Like most Puerto Ricans are not able to plunk down $18 million for a house at the beach, right? And this is this is what they're doing. They're driving up the, these prices into these ridiculous amounts. So that basically they are assured that only wealthy people like them can live there in those places, right? But coastal communities in Puerto Rico have, uh, such as the Hobos Bay, have uh, historically been the communities of the poor, actually, of, of impoverished, commu- impoverished communities. So, so it's kind of, you know, this curse of of a beautiful, right, the, the curse of the resource curse, in this case, the curse of beauty, uh, now that people want, right, now that people want leisure all the time, or they want to work remotely from the beach, right? Um, <laughs> and so, how this relates to this, <laughs> this distinction between environmentalism and environmental justice is that there is, um, this has happened in, in a few communities, but there is this um, community in, uh, actually, it, it, it was a wealthy Puerto Rican enclave to begin with, but it's called Ocean Park. Um, and this is in the north, this is in the San Juan region. Um, but recently, there was a couple Uh, a couple, he's American and and I believe the woman was Puerto Rican, but they bought a house right on the beach at Ocean Park. And uh, on a Saturday, I don't know, on a weekend day, uh, you know, youth, local youth came to the beach to play volleyball, play volleyball at the beach. So they were setting up their nets and the lady whose house is right at the beach, right. But the beach is a public beach. She has no, uh, no rights over the public beach, but the, her house faces this public beach. She, she came out of her house to say that they had to leave. They couldn't play there because they were disturbing her peace, <laughs> right? And then in that video, one of the youth uh, videoed her harassing them to leave. And the, the young person said, you know, uh, this is a public beach. And the lady said, well, you, it it will be, she said, you don't have, you don't have access to this unless you have millions, unless you pay millions, right? As is asserting, you know, her, so her claim is I paid millions for this. So I have rights and you don't because you didn't pay millions for this, right? So, Anyways, how this relates to environmentalism, and, and I actually have another anecdote, but it relates to environmentalism because in the, in the, in the US, and these people actually are, are transplants from the mainland to Puerto Rico. Um, in the US, the way that people use beaches is in this kind of environmentalism way, which is you go to the beach and you're very quiet and you're there to enjoy the beauty. To hear the birds, to hear the the, you know the grass rustling against the wind, to hear the waves, and you could go to a beach. You know, I live in Rhode Island where there's 300 miles of of beaches, um, and you don't. It's packed. You see people and dogs and children all around you, but you don't hear anything. <laughs> you don't hear them. There's no, you know, no. It's not loud. You don't hear them. Whereas in Puerto Rico, the culture is one in which sound is really important. In which communication and joy and like expressing your joy verbally and through song is really important. Right? So these folks, these environmentalists, right, and, and this woman, I mean, I'm not sure that she was an environmentalist, but I wouldn't be surprised. The lady who was harassing the young people, um, you know, thinks she has a right to nature without the people and without the culture of that place. And because she paid money, it has to be what she says it is, which is a quiet beachfront that she can just look out at the ocean all day long without any kind of disturbance. Right? So environmentalists tend to to have this kind of mentality where there's a lot of, I mean, it's not, you know, I don't want to stereotype. And I, you know, uh, so I want to, just be fair, but there is this way in which environmentalists of this kind of uh, classic ilk, uh, and particularly North North American, I I should also say that in the John Muir vein of environmentalists, uh, are not interested in culture, right? They're interested in nature in in this kind of, quote-unquote, pristine way, right? And this is problematic because, you know, you cannot really separate uh, any ecosystem from the culture or the people, which is part of it. Right. Um, and then environmental and environmentalists also in the case of Puerto Rico have tended to be, you know, upper class, university educated uh, they love nature. They don't really quite know un- or understand people. You know, they don't always understand uh, people's relationship uh, to place in the cultural sense, right? So, you know, in relation to to plants and and bodies of water and and the relationship, you know, between people and animals, right? And the in non-human animals, I should say, um, And how those two really are are. Uh, symbiotic, you know? Um, and so that's, that's a problem. Whereas environmental justice uh, tends to be um, an ideology or, or a way of, of thinking about ecosystem that includes people, that is often people-led, right? And by people, I mean community people. Um, so environmental justice is, is often a doctrine that emerges from the community itself, right trying to achieve justice uh in their communities um and so this is a very different uh lens from which to to act i guess i would say um i was at a i'll tell you this this anecdote too and i should have uh, written it in the book but um i when i was doing field work um i was at a this was in like 20 was it, I don't know if it was before maybe 20, 2018. Um, I was at a meeting in one of the communities uh, in the Hobos Bay. And the meeting was about um, the coal, toxic coal ash. And it was about thinking about strategies, right? To convey to the public as to why this toxic coal ash, right? Is detrimental to the ecosystem. Right, so this is the kinds of meetings communities have. <laughs> they get together. These are people you know, grandmothers, grandfathers, you know, uh some have college, some didn't finish high school right these are These are the kinds of meetings people sit in a circle, right, and everybody gets a chance to say what they're thinking, and other people listen, no, there's no podium, there's no you know hierarchies in in that kind of way. Um, of course, the elders are respected and people give them more space and time to think and talk. Um, and people listen to the elders too quite a bit. But there, there is no kind of knowledge hierarchy. That's what I, I want to say. Um, like, like in a university meeting. <laughs> um, and I went to this meeting and we're sitting in a circle. And, and the facilitator was a man who was not from the community. He lived in you know another part of the island altogether, but he, for some reason and actually it was kind of a mystery still to some folks uh, in the in the community uh, he was kind of leading and facilitating the the meeting and so um I had met him before at another strategizing meeting with and at that meeting there were like you know 20 communities from all over the islands so that's when I first met this this man and he was an environmentalist he was a a euro euro puerto rican man university educated I think he had an engineering degree and a law degree uh, very well spoken very well presenting and very assured of his stance and his beliefs and his ideas about environment. Um, and he came to this community meeting in the Hobos Bay to facilitate this meeting about health and toxic collage and passing the message out to, to the public, how this is detrimental. So he was, we have met before and then he saw me, I was there as an observant. I was just there, you know, uh, witnessing and, and, uh, being there in uh, as an ethnographer i suppose Uh, and he had been we have met before and he said who you know at the other meeting uh, at that kind of bigger meeting and he said uh you know i was introduced to him and and then he says oh you're an anthropologist yeah um and then he said oh you know i'd like to see some of your work and i heard you've written some stuff so if you can send it to me sure So I sent him through email, some of my publications, which were all about environmental justice and environmental racism. And so the next time I see him at this community meeting, he was really angry at me, visibly angry, um, because he, and then, so in the middle of the meeting, he puts me on the spot and says, perhaps, you know, Hilda here can explain how racism has anything to do with environmental problems. (laughs) <laughs> this isn't so he, and he was saying this isn't a, there is a no racism in Puerto Rico this isn't about environmental racism and he's a white man sitting with 20 Afro descendant people so we're all looking at each other like he's gone mad <laughs> and he says I do agree with her that there is a class issue so that Poverty is the reason why or, you know, the reason this is happening in this community, because this is a poor community with no political power or representation, which is, of course, one of the reasons environmental injustice happens in some communities. But he outright denied, even though he was sitting circled by Afro-descent visibly Black people, he said there is no racism in Puerto Rico. And he said this with a straight face, no Questions, no ifs, no buts. He was certain. And he wanted me, he wanted to put me in the spot with the community so that the community would back him. There's, yes, we feel no racism here. A community that is the descendants of enslaved people. (laughs) Right? So this is the, the, so this is an example of how uh, environmentalists. With good intentions, because of course he was sitting he was sitting there and he was participating and trying to help, right? So his intentions are good, right? But without any right uh, awareness of the you know larger issues around race and class and gender that plague environmental injustice frontline communities. Right. And this is this is a problem. And this is the distinction between environmentalists and environmental justice activists, that environmental justice activists take into account, you know, uh, ecosystem relations, gender, class, race, poverty, you know, like all of the kind of isms that plague them because they live and breathe the air, they drink the water, they plant in the land. They deal with the non-human animals, right? And, and store that spot. So this is, you know, the, this is the distinction that I want to make <laughs> or that I do make in the book. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, we're reaching the end of our time together, yeah. but I, this book I'm sure as listeners can catch from this interview, this book is packed full with wonderful information you you touch on everything from different active activist initiatives to uh anthropological methodology as we talked about to theorizations of resilience as you mentioned you talk about the history of puerto rico people can listen learn about the history of puerto rico in this book it's packed full despite not being a very long book mm-hmm. I have one final question, which is a tradition on the New Books Network. Which is, what are you working on now?
1: <laughs> I um, that's a good question. It's a uh, one that I'm usually super guarded about. <laughs> I'm one of these people who just, you know, it's over here in a cave, hiding from everyone and everything, so I can think. Uh, <laughs> um, but my, uh, I'm I'm working on a book uh that that touches on or that deals directly or completely with uh what i'm calling afro-coastal lives um and i'm working on that book it's a it it will be a co-author book with uh, dr garcia quijano carlos garcia quijano whose work has uh really centered on the ecology of coastal um regions in puerto rico and so we're working together on on the book that will deal with uh livelihoods and everyday lives of of afro-coastal people so we'll focus uh quite a bit on on everyday livelihoods and and on things like foraging and fishing and the use of you know the ecosystem for survival um, that i think is kind of the other you know, the other part, the other coin that needs to be explored um, when you think about, you know, uh, Afro-descendant coastal communities. Yeah, in the Americas. Mm -hmm.
0: The book is Making Livable Worlds, published with the University of Washington Press in 2021. Professor Hilda Jorens, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much.